0: Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.
1: I was hoping somebody would say that. You ever wonder why when someone sneezes, the response is, God bless you, or bless you, or if you're Germany, Gesundheit? You ever wonder about that? There's no real answer for that. I researched, I know. Look back, you know, it started about sometime in the 70 AD, just shortly after the time of Jesus, but it's not a biblical thing. It's just something that sometimes by superstition it seems. that Some people think that there was a demonic expulsion, and so there was a need to say, God bless you. Somewhere there's a, a prophylactic against that demonic activity. Or maybe that your person's heart stops, which it doesn't, by the way, when you sneeze and so it's God bless you. Or maybe it's just a, a, you know, a, a sign of empathy. I think it's probably more that for most of us. You know, when someone sneezes, we empathetically say, God bless you or bless you. It's a great thing. We should do that. But it was important that we understand that today we're going to talk about how God has blessed us in a biblical sense, not in this superstitious thing. And we're going to go with a text that we just read or you just listened to in Matthew chapter 5. We won't do all the verses that were there, we're just going to do the first 12 verses of that in a section known as the Beatitudes. And so anyway, Beatitude simply is a, comes from a Latin term, which means a state of being blessed, a state of being content, of life being fulfilled, a, a sense in which this is, a, I'm happy, I'm fortunate. It's a state of well-being, and that's what the Beatitudes are really about. But this kicks off a series that we're going to be doing in the Sermon on the Mount, The Sermon on the Mount comes from verse first. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I believe that that was the 12 disciples. I think they had a ringside seat. But the word disciple is much bigger than that. It means a learner. It means a follower. It would have been all the people that Jesus would gather to listen to his teaching and he goes up onto a mountainside so he can address the crowds because they didn't have any public address systems of the day and so he's there and he sits down and he begins to teach like teachers did in those days they didn't stand they just sat and began to teach and so anyway the, the, this falls in the book of Matthew Matthew is a book that one of my professors in the seminary whose name was Dwight Pentecost isn't that a great name to have if you're gonna teach in a theological school or a Bible teacher, Dwight Pentecost said that the book of Matthew was written to answer this question. If Christ, Jesus, is the king, then where's the kingdom? You see, most people were expecting a political leader who would deliver them from the the tyranny of Rome And that's who they thought the the Messiah was going to be. Well, they were confusing Jesus' first coming with his second coming, and there will be a second coming, when he does establish reign on the earth, when he does establish his kingdom. But in a sense, the book of Matthew is addressing in many cases that's coming, but it's not yet. Some other people have put it this way, though, when it talks about the kingdom of God, it's already. In other words, Christ is reigning. He's been raised from the dead. He's reigning in the heavenlies right now. He's still ultimately in charge, but it's not yet that he will reign on the earth. And so we see this passage and we wonder, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? Well, part of it is, I think that it's teaching us. If you are a kingdom citizen, in other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then this is what our life should look like. This is not a series of code and ethics to become a child of God. It's because who we are as a child of God, this is our new DNA. It's our new identity. And that's, in essence, what he's talking about in the Beatitudes, that we are blessed if we are in Christ, and there's many of the benefits to following Christ that are here. What does it mean to be blessed? It says this: He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, "Blessed." And you're going to see at the term first of every term, and the first is blessed in the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be blessed? I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's a state of happiness, a state of well-being, it's a state of fulfillment, it's a state of contentment of who we are in Christ. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, says, Blessed is the man, same word, but in Hebrew, blessed is the man or person who does not live according to the principles and practices of this world, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, does not stand in the place of those that ridicule the ways of God. Blessed is that man or woman who does not live according to the principles and practices of the world, but delights in the word of God and in the ways of God. That's a transliteration of Psalm 1.1. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about in Christ we are a blessed people. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then if you read through chapter 1 in Ephesians, and I would encourage you to do that. Write it down and, and go back and look at it. Ephesians chapter 1. Here's some of the things you're going to see as to how we've been blessed. God chose us. God adopted us into his family. Not because we deserved it, because he wanted us to be a part of his family. He pursued us long before we ever said yes to him and pursued him. God chose us. He adopted us into his sons and daughters. He redeemed us. That's a fancy word to say. He bought us out of the prison house of sin and suffering and the consequences of that. He has forgiven us as a part of what it means to be blessed. Not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious, because he's merciful. He hasn't dealt with us according to what we deserve. He has forgiven us. He has poured out His grace upon us. The text in Ephesians once said, He has lavished His grace upon us. He just opened it up and poured out from heaven. The windows of heaven, He poured out His grace upon us. He's lavished that, His unmerited favor. It goes on to say he has brought us into his confidence. In other words, he has given to us the mind of Christ. He reveals to us an understanding of the way that things are going so that we don't live according to the conventional wisdom of this world, but we can see above and beyond the purposes of God, and we don't have to live under the circumstances, but we live victoriously above them in Christ. He has given to us that type of wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above. We are a blessed people. Can I get an amen to that? Absolutely. When you think about who we are in Christ, it will absolutely blow your mind. If God was to say to you, I'm going to pour out a blessing on you. I'm going to open the windows of heaven. I'm going to bless you. What would you say? Bring it on. God, anytime you want to bless me, hey, I'm totally good with that. Bring it on. Bring the buckets, bring whatever you got. Bring it on. Well, you notice what the first one is. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That wasn't quite what you're expecting when you hear you're blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit for those are the ones of whom this kingdom of God. See, Christ's kingdom, He said, is not of this world. His ways are higher than the things that we see and experience. His way of thinking, His way of living, is totally opposite. He said, "You would be great, then become the servant of all." That's how its greatness is measured in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who consciously depend upon God, not themselves. They're poor inwardly. They have no ability, as they understand in themselves, to please God. Those who recognize they're broken. Those who recognize they're dependent upon God. Those who recognize He's God and we're not. How easy it is to get those things confused. He does not exist as our personal assistant to make our lives better. We exist for Him. That's a major paradigm shift. The poor in spirit, one commentator says, in the sense of this beatitude are those who recognize that they're completely and utterly destitute in the realm of the spirit. They recognize their lack of spiritual resources and therefore their complete dependence upon God. Again, to pair this with other passages that Jesus would have taught from, in, in Psalm 34:18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. Do you understand that? I don't know what's breaking your heart. I don't know what's crushing your spirit. But do you realize the Lord is near? And as he's near, the kingdom of God is right there for you and with you to give you the power to keep going on. In the newer testament, it says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that this is what Jesus did. Have this mind in you as a Christ follower, which was also in Jesus, in Christ who although he was, cre- he was not created, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus never ever ceased to be God. What did he do? What did he empty? him? He emptied himself of the rights and the privileges that were his as the Son of God. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. He loves me. And he wanted to serve and to meet the needs we have. The greatest need was our salvation, our forgiveness. So he went willingly to a cross. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But he died on a cross because he wanted to provide salvation for you and me. Okay, if Jesus, never ever ceasing to be God... Would serve in that way. Who do we think, as Christ followers, that we're better than He is? That somehow everybody ought to serve me. That the world is is Rick centered. You can put your name in that blank. I I would like the company. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about Christ. Peter goes on, one of Christ's closest disciples, in chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in the proper time. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. When we put ourselves in a position of vulnerability like that, it creates our anxiety level to spike, doesn't it? But the question is, are we going to trust him to meet our needs or do we feel like we're the ones that have to do that? This passage, Poor in Spirit, I just heard last week. I was at a chapel service for Phoenix Seminary. Some of you were there as well. And, and Jamie Rasmussen, the pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church, used this passage. Jamie had the luxury of doing this one beatitude. i got to do them all. So that's the way it rolls. But he said this. He said, you know, when I, went to, when I first came to Christ, it was about five years before I went to seminary, and I was on fire for God. Then I go to seminary, and I call it my cemetery years. Because I hit a wall. He said, I came in a very wounded person. And he acknowledged this in front of that group. So this is not tales out of, out of school, so to speak. But he said, I had some real father issues that were wrecking my world. I came in very wounded. And he said, never wants us to say, and I left, what? Healed. I come into seminary, I come into Bible study, come into church wounded, because we're all wounded. You get that, don't you? You realize that there's no one in this room that's not wounded. All of us have wounds. All of us have scars. Some of them may be very raw. Some of them may be in the distance, but they're still there. He said, I came into seminary, and I didn't leave fixed or healed. I left Broken. And I'm praying every one of you leave broken as well. Wow. What's he mean by that? That we're humble. That we're dependent. That in spite of our wounds, that we're moving forward in the strength that God provides because it's in our weakness, his strength is demonstrated. And if we don't realize that, we're not going to accomplish anything for him and we're not going to experience his blessedness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it reflects itself just in a business context. A few days ago, Emily and I were talking with a guy who was a salesperson, and he had met with us. And like any good salesperson does, he tried to get to know us, and so he found out we had been married. and He sort of liked the way that Emily always busts my chops, and I take it, and you know, we play with each other like that. And, and he said, how long have you guys been married? We said, 44 years. Two days later, we're sitting down to talk about some business stuff again, and he said, you mind if I ask you something really personal? Said, no, what? He said, what's the secret of being in a relationship, a marriage for 44 years, still be happy? Give us the opportunity to say, both of us, it's about expressing love in the way that God has loved us. The Bible says we should love our wife, guys, as Christ loves the church. That means Sacrifice. I mean, seek to meet her needs, not our needs. It's about love. It's about respect. It's about forgiveness. We shared sometimes with them that our marriage could have just blown out of the water if it weren't for the forgiveness of God. And here's another, humility. It's what we're talking about here, humility. Where we put the interest of the others ahead of our own. It's a choice that's made. You know, sometimes when we do child dedications, you, some of you have heard me say this, that God gives children to parents to help the children grow up. That's obvious, isn't it? You know what's not so obvious for a lot of us, or at least we're not willing to admit it? God gives children to parents to help the parents grow up. Am I right? Absolutely. You can't be a good mate. You can't be a good friend. You can't be a good parent and be selfish. Selfish humility has got to be a huge part of that. Let's go on. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, great, it gets better. For they shall be comforted. He didn't say it's a good thing to be mourning. He just said it's a good thing to be comforted, and we're blessed of God even in the midst of our mourning. I have a friend. I called her this week because she lost her husband two weeks ago. Her name's Maxine. I said, Max, Max. How are you doing since Stan died? She said, oh, it's hard. I know he's with the Lord. And, you know, I, and we talked about that. And I said, I know that, but I also know it's hard. She said, yeah, Rick, it really is. The other night I was in bed, and I reached over to pull the covers up on him, and he wasn't there. I miss him so much. See, she's mourning, but she's mourning not in the same way as those who don't have any hope. She knows there'll be a reunion. She knows there'll be a, a getting back together. She knows he's with the Lord. She knows that he's not dealing with the effects of that stroke that he just had, and he's able to speak, and all those types of things. But she also knows that he will be a husband to The Lord will be a husband to her through these years, whatever the time is. She's being comforted. She's mourning, but not without hope. It could be mourning over the circumstance when you see inequity and injustice that exists. What breaks the heart of God should break the heart of God's child and should spur us to action. Like Jesus, when he wanted to call the people of Jerusalem on his triumphal entry, and yet they wouldn't come, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to cover you in my wings like a hen covers her chicks, but you would not. We mourn that. We mourn when we have a wayward child, a wayward spouse, a friend that just won't listen. We also should mourn when our lives don't square with what the Word of God teaches us, when we're not good representations of Jesus. The book of James has a passage that, frankly, at one season of my life I hated. You got portions of the Bible like that you just hate it? Can we be truthful here? I don't like that. I'm going to tear that out of my Bible. I hated it because it was convicting. But now that I have responded to it, it brings me great comfort. You know what the passage is? Beware, you double-minded, you hypocrites, you people who have befriended the world instead of befriending God for enmity, With God, friendship with the world is enmity or hatred toward God, and mourn, weep, be miserable. I'm thinking, I knew it. I knew Christianity was masochistic. I don't want that. But here's what it says So, what used to make you laugh now should make you cry. I want to tell you, there was a season of my life I was a follower of Jesus, but I wasn't committed to following him, if you know what I mean. I tried to live in both worlds. I tried. Friends were my God. Friends were my source of comfort. Friends, And so I compromised a lot of the the, the core values of my life in order to fit into this group. And so what it meant is my chameleon Christianity phase, I lived this way with this group of people, and I lived this way with other people, like at church and other things like that. Until the day that God threw my hypocrisy in my face, and I was supposed to be in a Church related thing representing to people how their life could be changed in Jesus, and there were people that came before me that knew me from this world. And I wept. And I prayed, God, I am broken. I never want to have this as a part of my life ever again. By your grace, deliver me. And by his grace, he did. He delivered me from the foul mouth and from the sexually oriented jokes and innuendos and disrespectful things I would say to people. He delivered me from the abuse of alcohol. He delivered me from those things. I'm not saying it was like this, but a page was changed and turned. I thank God for that. Now I look at that and I say, yes, what used to make me laugh now makes me cry. I understand this passage. Maybe some of you are there today. Maybe you need to do what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to change your way of thinking, change your way of living. I did. I needed that. Do you? He goes on to say, then, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, for a long time you think meekness and weakness, and that certainly doesn't get it. Meekness means humble, gentle, to have a proper appreciation of your position. Uh, it's a sense of saying, I am helpless apart from God's intervention. Meekness does not mean weakness. It's spoken of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Matthew 21. It's of Moses. Moses, that great leader of Israel through the Exodus. In Numbers 12 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. By the way, no extra charge for this little aside. Do you know who wrote Numbers 12-3? Moses. That would be like me standing here. Have you read my new book, Humility and How I Attained It? (laughs) Does there not seem to be a disconnect except for this? Moses is not really the ultimate author of that, but the Spirit of God is. I think Moses chafed under having to write those things. Moses was not a weak person. He was not a weak leader. He led hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million people, through the wilderness for 40 years who were obstinate and independent. He was a strong leader, but he was also known by God as the meekest man in all the earth. I, I love the person that described it as strength under control like a bridled horse. Very powerful animal, but that energy is harnessed. I also have seen it in a television commercial. Maybe you've seen it too. There's a postal worker that comes, and there is this guy in the window. He has long, dark hair. He has a lot of tats on his arm, and he's really muscular, and he's standing there like this. Have you seen? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. The guy's name is Roman Reigns, and if that doesn't mess you up, then I know someone in the WWE professional wrestler. I looked it up, all right? I had to check it out, but I've seen him familiar figure. He's standing like it looks like he's flexing. I know it scares you when you see me flexing biceps, right? He's doing this. What's he doing? It looks like he's flexing, but what is he doing? For those of you seen, his little daughter is in there and he is doing, I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spout. You seen it? It's cute. It's gentle. That's meekness. It's strength that is harnessed and under control like Jesus exhibited Moses so you and I should blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be satisfied that's hungering thirsting for personal righteousness the truth is the hunger of our hearts will never be met with money with sex with power those things can be great gifts from God but they're not ways to live our lives they are false gods if we put them there jesus said i'm the bread of life i will satisfy the hunger of your heart in john chapter six it is also about a societal righteousness not just as individuals but we long to see a time in which righteousness reigns here's what one commentator said the imagery of hungering and thirsting is best seen as focusing in the sense of need created by the present lack of a just social order lived out in the presence of God when we see injustice when we see wrong we should hunger and thirst and work for the day when those wrongs will be righted Stephen Celeste, Tracy your good friends some of you know them they have a ministry called mending the soul It's the couple in the ministry that Emily and I went to the Congo two years ago because in Congo, the UN has declared and names this part of eastern Congo as the rape epicenter of the world. And that's just one, it's a huge one, but it is one of the forms of horrific abuse that people have to endure. Economic abuse, even spiritual and religious abuse sexual abuse physical abuse and in just horrific ways the students that I worked with and Emily and I talked with every single one of them has stories of abuse that would blow your mind and yet they're seeking to help others to get through by the grace of God and steve is seminary professor he's a theologian celeste is a trained counselor and they're giving They're giving biblical principles of recovery and renewal and and being able to move beyond their life so that these people's past does not define their future. They're working for that. And their desire is to go where there's the greatest need and the least resource, which means it's a hard, hard life. Blessed are those with hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. One commentator says those who are merciful are kind to people in serious need. Their mercy is marked by generosity and by emotional identification with the situation of those trapped in their need. Mercy does not concern itself with strict calculation of what the person deserves. It allows people to make a fresh start and often involves forgiveness and the release of others from their indebtedness. It is costly in many ways. One of the Bible stories that we told, and when I say stories, it's historical narrative. It's not fictitious. One of the things we taught was a parable that Jesus taught. We taught these to our children in Splash Camp this year, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan, A Samaritan was one person whose whose racial, ethnic, religious background was different than a person in need, and those who were of his own stripe did not care for him. They bypassed him, even religious leaders, priests and Levites, gave him a wide berth because of how that would affect them. And I read an article about a month ago that said this, and it's a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King in reflecting on the parable of the good Samaritan. Listen to these words. So the first question that the priest asked, Dr. King says, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You hear the power of that statement? Do you hear the insight that Dr. King brought to that well known biblical passage? He put his finger right on the issue. It's not about what it costs me, it's about how it's going to affect this person if I don't. The next morning, Dr. King was assassinated for speaking up for these types of values. It cost him his life but I'm so thankful that his light shone and his words live on. Brendan, sorry. Philip Yancey is an author who wrote a book entitled "So What's, Am- What's So Amazing About Grace? And he said this to this issue, I grew up with the image of a mathematical God who weighed my good and bad deeds on a set of scales and always found me wanting I imagine God as a distant, thundering figure who prefers fear and respect to love. Too many of us have that type of image of God, which is unbiblical. Our God deals with us not according to what we deserve, but according to grace and mercy. Grace where we get what we don't deserve and mercy where we don't get what we do deserve. The author of the book I'm reading from is well-known in some circles about the love of God and the grace of God. And he talks about this challenge that some people have with this thought. He said, the skeptic might speak to Laura, a woman whose letter arrived in my mailbox this morning, and he quotes her. The one thing I long to hear from God is well done, but I know he'll never say that to me because I'm so stupid and lazy and selfish. I'm such an ungrateful brat. I'm a total failure hit the pause button. where do you think she heard that wasn't from God could have been from parents teachers church leaders friends one from God she goes on to say do yourself a favor crumple up this letter and forget about me He says, the skeptic might also talk to those women who were sexually abused by their father, their uncle, or their brother as children who are now consumed by rage, shame, impotence, and self-hatred. For that matter, speak to me. Sitting on a curb song along Grand Grandmire Avenue in New Orleans, I'm intoxicated after a relapse with alcohol. My clothes are in tatters, I reek with rancid body odor, I'm unshaven, my face and my belly are bloated, my eyes bloodshot, I'm clutching a fifth of Smirnoff, only a few ounces left. My marriage is collapsing, my friends are near despair, my honor is broken. My brain is scrambled, my mind a junkyard of broken promises, failed dreams, unkept resolutions. Fifty yards behind me is the detox center of F. Edward Herbert he, Hospital. As I take the last swig, I shudder at the pain and heartache that I've caused. Going to AA meetings, working the 12 steps, talking to my sponsor, reading the big book, praying, these have worked for others. Why have they worked for me? I know that I will never hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Minor panic, no more booze. Reaching in my pocket, I find a little money, and staggering down four blocks, I find a convenience store that's still open at midnight, and I buy a pint of their cheapest vodka. I retrace my steps, weaving across the venue to reclaim my seat on the curb. I do not want the life-saving treatment of the detox. I continue drinking. My eyes are filled with tears, and now I'm crying. Abba's drunken child, Jesus, where are you? Soon I pass out with a half full pint resting on my chest, and when I wake up in the morning, I learn that two staff members have come on the avenue and carried me into detox. Little did they know that that man, would recover and continue to recover throughout his life from this bane of alcoholism. And write books like Ruthless Trust and Abba's Child and The Signature of Jesus. His name is Brennan Manning. A I man had an unusual grip on the hand of God and who he has used, God has used to help countless thousands of people understand the love and the grace of God in a way they never did before. Friends, I could go on. There's much more in this passage, but I'm out of time. But would you like to continue talking about these types of things? Is this helpful to have this type of a uh, conversation over some of these core characteristics? Well, we've developed a study guide for you to go along with the sermons. You see on the bottom here where it says dsbc.church.sermons. There's questions in there that will help you with the understanding of these passages and with the application of them. You can do those as an individual. You can download them, look at them, however you want to do this. You can do that on your own, but better yet, let's gather with the group. And in that group, discuss and learn from each other as we wrestle with these issues in Scripture that are there. I want to invite you, but I also want to challenge you. If you're not involved in a community group, do that. Come on Sunday morning for the next seven weeks. Today and then the next seven weeks, you'll learn from the word here. But then, then gather with a group of people to learn again more about the word. If follow the study guide along, you can certainly work ahead so that when you come on Sunday morning, you're prepared. But the bigger thing is come and, and spend some time discussing this. If you're not a part of a group, we invite you to talk with. Direct can connect the people in the lobby. They'll help you. Uh, that's great. If maybe you're saying, well, I'm just not quite ready for that. I'm not sure about a smaller group. Pastor Caleb is going to be meeting in the lobby with his group. He invites anybody to come. It's on a Wednesday night, but you may also want to let them know that you're coming so they know how to set up enough chairs. And you may also be here this morning thinking, you know, I really don't quite know what I think about Jesus yet or what part he should play in my life. I'm not quite sure about that. I would love to meet with you for the next four weeks on Wednesday nights here's what we'll talk about we'll talk about what does it mean to have a relationship with God through Jesus okay this is new beginnings what does it mean to have a relationship what does it mean to experience on an ongoing basis the forgiveness of God on a day-to-day basis what does it mean to be able to have the power to live a new and different way and what's it gonna take to grow in your newfound faith in Jesus whether you're seeking or whether you're very, really a new believer and maybe you're intimidated to get involved in a group with, with other yeah, just don't know enough, come on, let's talk. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you will text your name and email address to this number, then they're going to give that to me and I'll get in touch with you and we'll start Wednesday night. And we're going to have a great time talking about those things.